It's a privilege for me to introduce someone who's become a good friend, Ryan Wynette. Ryan is the manager of Implicit Bias Initiatives at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. Now, when we hear the word bias, it is often heard with this negative connotation. But the reality is that bias is neither good nor bad. It just is, and we all have it. So let's go ahead and get started. This conversation is deep and fun and impactful, and I really can't wait to share this conversation with you. We welcome you to explore the third place with us. It is an invitation to the gray space, a space where deeper connections are fostered through challenging, challenging empowering, and, and engaging dialogue. You will walk away with a deeper understanding of self, equipped to engage with others in life's complex conversations. Thank you for listening. We invite you in to the third place. So Ryan, when we launched the Third Place Podcast, you were one of the first people that came to my mind as uh, someone I wanted to bring in, especially around an uncomfortable topic. You and I met first in 2017 at something called the Love Summit, which for our Third Place OG listeners, Samantha Thomas was uh, the founder of the Love Summit, and she was a guest last November. But so she organized a talk, and then you gave a talk about implicit bias at the Love Summit. And for me, that was the first time that I heard the phrase. Now, I hear it all the time, and I want to assume that others have heard it as well, but I also have to assume there's people like me that hadn't heard that before. Can you explain kind of what implicit bias is, and even as you've become an expert in the topic, how you define bias in general? Yes. Well, first, uh, uh, I'd like to thank you, David, for having me on today. And it's good that you think of me when you think of being uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> so, so that's great. Um, implicit bias is, uh, you know, I, I think it often suffers from this kind of vague, dry uh, definition uh, that makes it uh, really difficult for a lot of people to understand what we're talking about. The dry definition that we always use is the idea that uh, it's the actions or uh, stereotypes, attitudes that affect our understanding and our actions and our decisions in an unconscious manner. But what it really means is it's, I like to think of it as like the automatic assumptions that we make about other people. And, you know, bias in general, I think to understand unconscious bias, uh, and, and let's just get out of the way that when we're, for our purposes today, Implicit bias and unconscious bias are, are synonymous. In, in my experience, the reason they're called different things is largely a function of where the person talking about it uh, came from in academia. So in order to understand uh, unconscious bias, we need to think about conscious bias. But before that, we can talk about bias. And bias, the uh, etymology, the etymology's origin, and bias is just a, it's a French word meaning slant. And it originally came from talking about sewing and fabric. Anytime you're making a diagonal cut uh, across the fabric, it's on the bias. And it turns out that's all it, it means for us uh, presently is that it means you're not neutral. And so the example that I would use all the time, because I'm from Cincinnati, I'm a big Cincinnati sports fan. I want the Cincinnati Bengals to win whenever they're playing anybody. I'm biased toward them. I want the Pittsburgh Steelers to lose whenever they're playing anybody. I am biased against them. I do not care 
who is playing cricket in Australia today. <laughs> I have I have no bias, right? And so that's all bias means is that you lean one way or the other. And I think unfortunately it's it's come to mean uh, you know it's it's a fill in for bad. Bias means bad, but that's not what it means. It just means you're not neutral. I thought you were going to say, unfortunately, I'm stuck being a Bengals fan because I know that that's a painful bias. Yes, yes, but it, but at least it's an explicit one. That's right, right? Yeah, yeah. At least we know about it. So really, it's having an opinion. I mean, right? I, like that's what how I'm hearing it. Like you said, you're not neutral. You're not sitting in the middle, or you're not unengaged. You have some engagement in the top. Exactly. You have, um, you know, uh, pardon the expression, but you know, skin in the game. Um, and yeah. and that's exactly right. And the reason, you know. Implicit bias or implicit attitudes are one of about 200 of these biases that every human has in their brain. But believe it or not, there are more biases in the human brain than there are bones in the human body. Oh, wow. And just just like the bones in our body that each play a really significant, uh, unique role in supporting our skeletal system, uh, these biases each have a unique and individual role in getting us through the day as smoothly as possible. Yeah, where does the bias come from? Because if it's in the brain, like from an evolution perspective, I got to think that it's about survival, right? Exactly. So we know a little bit about the brain, uh, but there's still a whole lot to learn. One of the things we know is that the human brain is a huge energy hog. Mm. It's about 2% of your body weight, but 20% of the calories every day are used to think. So that's the reason that we have bias in a nutshell is because it's too expensive metabolically for us to remain neutral. You can't react from scratch every day because you quickly go crazy. So we have to take you think again to that cutting across the fabric. It's a shortcut. That's all biases are. And so the reason we have bias is because it's too expensive energy wise for us not to. We have to have these things. Too expensive metabolically. That's fascinating. Yeah. So it's like, it's purely a way that you're trying to retain as much as you possibly can and not reinvent every single day. You know, we talk a lot in the third place about beginner's mind, like trying to like leave things up to humility or to be surprised by it. So this is sort of like probably what we're working against when it comes to beginner's mind is bias. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, you said, well, just think about, again, like the difference between getting up in your own home every morning and shutting off the alarm and, you know, m- maybe putting something in the microwave and turning on the TV to watch the news. How much more difficult are those same things in a hotel room? Right. I mean, like you don't know how the alarm works. It's like so crazy. And then the remote, you're flipping things on. And that's because most of the time you never even think about it. And so that's the incredible thing about the human brain is you know, 95% of all thinking is unconscious. So every thought you've ever had or having right now or will have in the future is relegated to that little 5% sticking up above the surface. If we're thinking of like the classic iceberg image, right? And so a lot of biases are simply there to, to, to help us through. And it's interesting you said surprise, Mary, because I found that surprise uh, is an incredibly useful thing to evaluate because whenever we're surprised by something socially, it often means that it's it's not what we expected. Mm-hmm. There's some kind of violated expectation. And it reminds me of being nine or 10 years old and on an airplane. And I heard a female pilot's voice over the intercom for the first time. Right. And I was just like, my mind was blown. 
And the only way my mind is blown is because it's not what I expected to hear, whether or not I realized that it was what I expected to hear. Mm -hmm. God, I love that example. Are there any other examples from your personal experience or being that this is clearly a topic that you're an expert and immersed in that is some of these like broader bias that usually all of us have some angle on it? Yeah, I mean, I have a bunch. I'll tell you one that was actually a a, a new colleague of mine recently at the Freedom Center, um, where we we had gotten uh, some grant money to work with the Cincinnati Bengals, the football team, to work with local fifth and sixth grade classes to better understand these concepts. And uh, the first two football players we talked to, uh, when I asked, you know, what is one thing that people wouldn't know about uh, that the two guys were Trey Hopkins, our center, and then CJ Uzama, who's one of our uh, our tight ends. And both of them are very accomplished. Uh, they, they play the instruments, piano and clarinet. And Ashley, uh, our uh, our colleague, was pretty candid with me that she did not expect that. She was not a sports fan. Uh, she pretty much thought that there was not a lot that sports could offer her in terms of being interested. And she very candidly came over and said, you know what, that that is totally surprising. And an example that I'm going to use because I, I didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. And I think it's those things happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And, you know, I, I think that that's why we also get so quickly caught up into the points of perspective as being related to bias. When we talk about the third place podcast, it's all so much of the language is to bring my perspective, to bring your perspective. And can we bring our perspectives together to learn? Right. And of course, our perspectives are shaped so much by experiences, which has shaped our biases. And then when we have a new experience, then all of a sudden, I think that that's a time when we find or we uncover maybe biases that we didn't know that we had. So, you know, from all accounts, you've now become this expert in bias. I'm curious, what is your past perspective? I know that you're white and male. What are your points of privilege and why have you become so drawn to this topic of bias? Well, um, I think for a few reasons, Uh, you know, getting back to an earlier question real quick, my day-to-day a life at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in downtown Cincinnati, which has historically focused on, again, going back to that iceberg image, above the surface, conscious forms of discrimination. Because at a, at a macro level, kind of what we're talking about today is overcoming discrimination. Mm-hmm. And until recently, if, if you've been in the business of trying to fight discrimination, like the Freedom Center does, you've been relegated to an idea that bias uh, discrimination is a bunch of bad people doing bad things, as opposed to the knowledge that that everybody has bias. And to fully understand discrimination, you need to understand that a lot of this stuff might have to be unintentional for the simple reason that virtually all of our thinking is unintentional. And so if we're really a museum of conscience, which we are, we have to be willing and able to confront all forms of discrimination with the best methods and practices, which now include the idea that not all this stuff is done by bad people. It's done by human beings. And getting bias into people's minds is not something that is done by bad people. It's done by human beings is an important part of all this. I love that. Yeah, thank you. Well, just because I, to me, you know, it takes the weight off. I think sometimes, we, like you said, I think we're assigning the unconscious thought to the way that someone is. And 
uh, how they do when clearly it's unconscious. So how, why are we giving credit to where there's no credit due? It's like that to me feels like a forgiving perspective and also gives myself some slack. I think that that's like that. It's a practice of self-compassion and of external compassion just by that quick fact. Yeah. And and, and allowing for a little bit of grace in this whole, uh, you know, scenario, which I think is often sorely lacking in these types of discussions. Um, And I'll just tell you again, getting back to the the bias of my own life, I bet I am asked because I, I, I converse with the general public, museum visitors, people we're giving talks to pretty, pretty regularly over the course of the last few years. And I bet I am asked at least once or twice a week if I have a black girlfriend or fiance uh, by visitors. That would inspire you to do this work? How else could I be doing the work right. is, is their mindset. And, and it, it used to happen so often in corporate settings with talks, incidentally, always by a white man. And it, it happened so often that I stumbled across this answer of, uh, they would say, so do you have a black girlfriend? I'd say, no, do you know someone? <laughs> Just because it turns out humor is really useful in these things too, to kind of disarm the situation. And it kind of, it points out this thing, uh, you know, it flips it back on the person and kind of, I don't know, lays it out there in, in a way that shows the absurdity of everything. Well, how interesting that your job by nature, um, the conversations that's that are sparked from it have everything to do with like, you don't have to do much work to, to go into the topic that you're an expert in. Exactly. Because by being a white male in this position, you probably get there sooner than you need to ever. Well, I'll tell you this, uh, you know, if as we're talking about being candid and real on a very personal level, when I started this work five years ago, I would say my biggest fear internally was that being a, a white guy, a straight white man at that, am I the right person to be talking about this? And again, I came into this idea, this position through an opportunity to have an idea. And it was rooted in, in cognitive psychology. It was not rooted in being discriminated against. And so my big fear was, again, being the white guy, am I the right person to talk about this? And and. It, it just was fascinating to me how often two things would happen in a given week. One, I'd have a couple of white guys that would basically echo my fear by saying, man, you know, this is interesting. You ever wonder how much better this might be if you were black or like a black woman? And I would say, yeah, I wonder that like all the time. And then probably five times that number of people of color uh, would tell me in a given week, they would be very candid and say, after talking for a half hour, uh, somebody would say, you know what, listen, me and my husband, we, we both thought you were going to be black. And and this is, again, a, a black couple. And they would say that they're, they're not unhappy that that I wasn't. And I would say, what, you know, what do you mean? And it, time and time again, the, the reaction would be from these couples. Well, simple. If I was in there, people might walk by and come in and they might leave thinking this is just a black problem. And if it's my wife who's in there, they're going to think it might be a, a female problem or, you know, a, a black woman problem. And they won't think those things about you. And the, they might believe what you tell them. And five years ago, I remember thinking, you're crazy. How could it matter that much who was talking about this? And, you know, within months of that, I start doing speaking engagements. And then I've got all these guys asking me if I have a black girlfriend or fiance. And I was like, wow, they're totally they, they need to put me in this box. And that getting back to your earlier question that's what started, I think, the passion and getting interested in this because, like a lot of people, it's not so much that I was on the other side of these issues or anti. 
I was in the dark that they existed to the degree to which they do. And I'll tell you, on like day five in 2017, when we opened the exhibit permanently, I had a black woman in her 80s who we talked for an hour and then she just gave me a big hug and she said, you, you need to continue to do this because this is important in ways you will never understand. And I remember being emotional and I, and, and I, I didn't understand what she meant and I still don't understand, but at least now I know what I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, I can relate uh, a touch just because so much of our work in coffee is around women empowerment. And prior to the pandemic, we had planned for a women's event at the Freedom Center. And I thought, what a great venue to be able to talk about, you know, disenfranchisement and and other topics. But I, I remember so many people were like, wait a minute, you're organizing a women's event? That's weird. Like, why are you connected to the story? Clearly, you and I, I did have this ask. Um, so you have two girls? Because I said I had two kids. Nope, I have two boys. So I have learned through that experience. And what it sounds like you're describing as well is that when I talk about that experience, I get to speak to the other white men in the room in a way that uh, a woman would not be able to in the, with the same weight. And it's like, come on, guys, this is the right thing to do. And here's why. And here's all the science. And it becomes, unfortunately, a more trusted voice for that audience. Yeah. And that's that's a, that's for me as well, been a tough pill to swallow in the sense that I'm not good at a lot of things. One of the things I'm good at is public speaking, and I've always enjoyed doing it. And, and I've always been able to get people to listen to me. And for that reason, if you've never had a hard time getting people to, to hear you, you don't, at least I didn't give too much thought at to what volume other people are heard. And man, it's a difference. And again, it's, it goes into the whole privilege stuff because, you know, it, it's been five years since we started this exhibit. And it took me at least three years to, to start to understand this concept of, of privilege, which, you know, people listening on this podcast, uh, you know, I'm a six foot tall, straight white guy. And it turns out uh, that if you're those things, somebody slipped basically an invisible social gold card into your crib and, and basically said, you're going to get the benefit of the doubt for the rest of your life. But nobody tells you that you don't think of these things as advantages. It's just yeah. Monday. And that's the big hurdle, too, in addition to implicit bias, that I think as a 36-year-old man, I would have been incredibly useful to as a 16-year-old or as a 26-year-old to understand that there are there are different Americas based yeah. on who you are. Yeah, it's nice to to hear the two of you, you know, to witness the two of you have this conversation as well, because just like what you said, it's like you didn't even realize. I love the visual or the or the variance of volumes that each of us have, and that at the very least, by you having a large uh, a louder volume, you can probably turn up those that have a, a more dim one. Um, or you can at least give a voice to the voiceless, right? So at the very least. And I love like just witnessing the two of you have that awareness because I think that that in itself is actually quite rare. And for you to acknowledge really that it's been even three years now, you're like, I still don't even even get it, but I know that I need to keep doing it. I'm wondering like, how does someone, you know, work to fight their own implicit bias within themselves. I think that like many things, the first step is even recognizing, right? And oftentimes I think we are not given the opportunity to recognize unless maybe there's another party at hand or something happens. So like, how do we first recognize it and then do something about it? 
so I think step one is, I mean, the, the goal of all these things is you're trying to make your implicit beliefs explicit, right? That, I mean, that's the goal because again, for people out there, like implicit bias is not like, I know I'm a little homophobic or racist, but I just try not to show it. This is like, you have no idea, right? It's like double secret bias. And so, you know, that there are these tests out there, these implicit association tests, which have been around for about 25 years. Uh, we use them at the Freedom Center. They're useful to a degree, uh, but they also suffer from a lot of confirmation bias in the sense that every day I see people that before walking into the museum thought there was something to the concept. They think it's valid. And so they find the test interesting. The people that don't know about the concept or think it's bad beforehand think the tests are garbage. But I'll tell you this, about a dozen times over the last few years, it's always been a white person, mostly white men, but always white people. They've taken the, the IAT about race, and which features uh, not photographs, but uh, drawings, renderings of a black man and a white man's face. And they're more or less interchangeable, except that one is black and one is white. And a dozen times, somebody has come over to me very earnestly and said, hey, listen, I just took that test about race and, and, and I know that this is about science and research. And I just wanted you to know that the black men on this test are far more threatening than their, than their white counterparts. So if you could just tell the scientists to make those black guys less threatening, I think that would make the test a well, lot uh, better. And just your reaction, Mary, is exactly what, what I was going for. If that, if everyone could see it. I, I, my jaw dropped because I was like, they just literally. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> And I, and I would very clearly or very candidly uh, say, you know, here, c come have a seat. That's actually implicit bias because these guys' faces are designed to be identical. And if the black guy's face is so much more threatening that you had to come over here earnestly, non-ironically, to tell me this, then that's not his face. That's how you view his face. And every time, I don't, I don't screw around with it because it's a very profound moment. And they, they walked away, I think, having a much better grip of what this stuff actually is in practice than they did before walking in the door. And those things are, are wild. And you were talking at the very beginning about being uncomfortable. And, you know, being uncomfortable has, I think, a lot of different roles uh, in, in our brain. But one of them is your brain saying, whoa, wait a second. Uh, are you sure you want to be here? Are you sure? You know, it's uncharted territory. Maybe we should get out of here. And I think, unfortunately, this stuff can't just be thought over. You can't just think your way out of it. You actually have to be on the ground and dealing with it. And I've gotten more than a couple calls from, uh, you know, managing directors and presidents of fill-in-the-blank organization the day or the days before giving a talk. And th it would always be uh, the same refrain. It would say, well, you know, I'm just a little worried about how uncomfortable these things are going to make my people. Do you think we could dial it back? And I would say, well, we can. But just keep in mind that being non-uncomfortable has what led you to this point. Yeah. I just was thinking of something really quick where there's like we, we uh, I've had a lot of conversations in the last couple of weeks about, you know, comfort zone, uh, learning zone and then anxiety zone. Right. And so I think that what I think is really valuable about what you're saying and about the Freedom Center and probably about the ability to make your bias explicit is to be able to be in that learning zone so that's still you're still in the uncomfortable zone, but it's not going to force you into added anxiety or potentially traumatizing because that's not going to stick. And so there's 
clearly has to be some tact and safety included into how you address when the bias surfaces. Yeah, uh, it, it reminds me of in like Psych 101 in undergrad, I remember the two phrases that they would say, they're two different approaches to get information across. You got door in the face versus foot in the door. And it turns out if you start with like, okay, these are the three reasons you're a little racist. That does not go over very well with, with most people, right? It makes them entrench and, and retreat into their corner. And as much as, you know, we want to believe that those people's beliefs are crazy, trust me, they think their beliefs are not crazy. And often I think the, you know, why can't you get this approach we have is counterproductive. And so if you're really trying to make inroads into somebody else's belief system, you need to acknowledge uh, that that's the fact and that they're not just putting other people on. They are earnest about their beliefs. And, you know, don't smack them in the face when this stuff starts. Take the scenic route. Start around the corner with something that's not emotionally laden, as I think David, uh, not that he was uh, in any way, uh, you know, on the on the uh, negative side of this, but I remember him uh, finding a few things really useful uh, in some of the, the talks that, that I gave when he was around. And... I've heard that same kind of refrain from a lot of people. And I think like that's the recipe for success is we always talk about meeting people where they are. I see a lot of meeting people where they aren't all the time. And this is easier said than done, but it, it works. Well, and it makes me think of uh, some of our current climate, you know, as the world started to open up from COVID, we saw this whole rash of gun violence. And so, of course, the conversation becomes, well, and these are facts like we have more guns per capita, like by a large, large percentage than any other country in the world. So there's this bias of if you're a gun owner that I will have against you. But also like the whole door in the face, like if a solution is fewer guns. Then all of a sudden, if you have a gun, whether you're, you have an automatic rifle or not is a different conversation, but you immediately get looped into, well, you're a part of the problem. And that's not where we can start the conversation. That's definitely a door in the face approach to this gun pandemic that we find ourselves in. Yeah. I mean, I think again, just getting back to the, uh, you know, the, the, the earlier talks we were having about, you know, the best way to approach this stuff, you know, when I'm with elementary schoolers or middle schoolers and, uh, you know, I, I say, how many people in here uh, have bias and, you know, three people raise their hand it's obviously clear that a lot of people think that I can't have bias because bias is bad and I'm a good person. So, you, you know, you start uh, foot in the door. Okay, anybody here have a favorite subject in school? Least favorite subject, favorite color. You know, th well, guess what? Those are biases. If you don't have a favorite color or subject, you're unbiased. But how fun is that? And, you know, one really, really valuable tool, I think, to get across uh, the difference between implicit and explicit, because this is kind of a gray area betwixt them, is if I have at least a dozen people, I ask, is anybody left-handed? Somebody will be. And man, left-handed people are incredibly aware that the world is not constructed for them. And you know what? I'm right-handed, but I grew up with a mom and brother that are left-handed. And if you're right-handed like me, I just go out into the world, you know, not even thinking about it. I call it right privilege. You know, you just, you just don't think about it. Um, and incidentally, that, that example also shows just how clearly and consistently the outgroup in anything is ostracized because it's about 10% of the world is left-handed. And that's where the term sinister comes from. Sinestra is Latin for left-handed. Gauche, the French word we use for tacky, means left. 
And ambidextrous translates literally ambi both dexterous right hand. You can use your right hand with both hands. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's just, and it's the left-handed people are so eloquent in being able to tell you about the, the, the litany of things that they've had to deal with their whole life. And I'm just sitting there thinking, oh my God, really? Like, I never even thought about it. Yeah, my, my experience with those that ha- have dominant left hands is they're amazing at every sport. They've always been because they trick everyone because we're all anticipating what the majority knows, right? But also that you got to make sure to sit on the correct side so that you're not bumping elbows or if you're eating at a, a dinner. Yeah. <laughs> I just like... <laughs> But those are the minutiae that like make up their whole life experience every single day, every minute of every day. Exactly. They're reminded all the time. My mom's left hand and my dad's right. She said that was the only easy decision of their entire marriage is which side of the bed to sleep on. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's again, I found these things can be useful in trying to just, again, demonstrate at a very non-threatening, non-emotional level, you know, what, what we're talking about. Because so often people just have these ideas that are not true, but it's also not useful to say that's wrong. Right. Right. It's, it's like we've discovered that we have a bias against the word bias because we have a bias that assumes that bias is bad. Yeah. It's a four letter word. It's a four letter word. <laughs> yes. We got to de-bias the bias. And that's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's a lot of like the beginning of my talk is being able to just kind of set the table and say, okay, well, this is maybe one way to look at it. Uh, this is what it's kind of really about and getting people on board with, with, that. And if you can get people on board with something and they're not threatened, you can pivot and parlay that into something much more meaningful in short order. Yeah, we, we did an episode saying that politics is a good word in the last uh, election season. And it, it reminds me a lot of that because I think that when you think of just like bias, it can spark an emotion or a bias, right, immediately. And that just by creating a little bit of shock, can you realize, or if you go to the root of the word, which I've loved, you've sort of woven that through this entire conversation, suddenly there's an, it's actually very easy for us to all come to a a similar experience or an understanding because the root of the word is something that, um, that takes the emotion out of it. You know, it's like with politics, it was like, it's about community, right? Like it, it has to do with gathering of community and with bias, when you think of that, it's just about forming an opinion or having something to to engage with. Then suddenly uh, it takes that charge off of it. Yeah. And sometimes that's all you need to start to have a you know legitimate conversation. And, you know, getting back to, you know, what are the ways that we can unearth some of these hidden uh, beliefs? I'll tell you, I've had a couple of aha moments, I'd call them, uh, one of which was maybe six months is right around the time I met David for the first time in 2017. And I had a group of parents uh, after hours at the Freedom Center. Most, they're all from a local high school. Most were black, some were white, probably two thirds uh, black, but all had sons in high school. And I remember asking these assembled parents, so at what age did you have to talk with your sons? And, and man, if you're white in this country, it's like a trademark symbol at the end of that. It's the sex talk. That's why it's the talk. And every single one, not most, not some, Every single one of those black parents, the talk with their sons was the police talk. And that, you know, uh, I think has become more of a trendy thing to talk about the last few years. I had no idea. And, you know, it's not like the, the black parents aren't having the sex talk either, but it's priorities. And that blew my mind because that's not what I was asking. And yet it totally was. 
And that just kind of blew me away. One mom, I'll never forget it. She said at the end, she said, Ryan, I would be an irresponsible mother if I did not have that talk with my son. And I thought, holy cow, there are different, because I know my mom was worried the way moms get worried when their 16-year-old son got his license. I know she was not worried because I've talked with her about it. She was not worried that if I got pulled over, I wouldn't come home. And that's a different level of, of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of one of the things that got the, uh, the ball rolling and it kind of blew my mind. So. Well, and I think that that's why uncovering the biases are so important and why we need to pull them out and just lay them on the table because, you know, my heart breaks to even think about the idea of sitting down with my 16 year old, you know, not that I'm near that, but sitting down with a 16 year old son to have the police talk as the talk. Like I can't even fathom the emotions that are required with that. I can try to think about the emotions of your son leaving the house on his own for his first time, right? Or a daughter, let alone adding the additional fear of don't get pulled over. Like that just blows my mind. So that fear is the emotion that is what we have in common. It's just amplified. So can we first realize that we're all parents, we're all mothers, we're all fathers to these kids that are going out in the world? And and can we just cling to that emotion as that does, that just sucks? I don't know how, like, can we just cling to the emotion that collectively that sucks? Yeah. Yeah, this conversation came up uh, with someone that I know that's far more conservative, white male, sort of, you know, just like the two of you. And and he was sharing about when he got pulled over by the cops when he was younger. And then it became like he was sharing like a shit giving story or like it was like a funny time in his life. It was like not negatively charged at all. And I love how you pointed out the value of humor in order to be able to have conversations with people that may not even know the bias or um, just to be able to entertain that. And I literally I flat out said I was like, oh, thank goodness you weren't you're not black. And, and it was, it was, you know, ballsy of me for sure. But then we had the best conversation about it. And I could not believe that by me being light and just like calling out something that was not even a part of the conversation, but has so much been something that I've been thinking about over the last year, especially we were able to, to have a conversation that I think otherwise would have been completely closed off. And I, and I felt like I saw a spark in in his eyes that that we were able to go there and i don't think that that would have ever happened without a little bit of a lightness around humor yeah i mean i think uh it's like chaucer uh people always say shakespeare but it's chaucer who first said many a true word has been spoken in jest Mm -hmm. and it's incredibly useful to be able to go out on a limb and you know maybe that wouldn't work but i'll tell you what for every two times it didn't work if it worked in the way that it worked for you worth it you know, so worth it. So worth it, even though it was, you know, to be honest, scary for me. But then to have that positive reinforcement of the conversation going in a productive way and a conscious way, then inspires me to be able to have more of those conversations. So that to me is like, what we you know, what we're talking about more is like, once it's explicit, well, then what do you do with it? Right? So is there anything that you could say about that, that it's like, okay, once we get it to this explicit zone, how do you encourage it really sticking or? Well, I mean, I think it can, 
it, you know, it, it's just what you said. I think it becomes kind of like building muscle where the more you do it, the easier it gets, the stronger it gets. And I'll just tell you, you know, from one example, we've been talking a lot about race here, but, you know, I remember, you know, there's a lot of classic things about gender that go on in, you know, just uh, the trope of a business meeting of, you know, from a, a man at the same volume sounding passionate and a woman sounding, I don't know, preachy or nagging or, you know, uh, let's say Mary, and I can never, I'm going to use David as an example, but just because he's here, it's so nice. But, you know, Mary having an idea in a meeting, and then 10 minutes later, David says the same thing, and yep. everybody's like, wow, that's a great idea. Um, it and happens all the time. Exactly. And, you know, it never happened before I knew it happened all the time. And so that's what was so amazing is like, so one of the uh, 200 cognitive biases we were talking earlier, it's uh, it's called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon or the frequency uh, illusion, where basically you've never heard of something and or, or never seen something and let's say a new car, and then all of a sudden you see it for the first time and then you see it everywhere, right? And what are the odds that it never you know, was around before that? Very low. You start to appreciate just how often this stuff used to happen. And but then it's almost impossible for it not to not to cross your mind. And so I've been definitely part of a few meetings where I saw this in real time. And I used to think like if it happened, David totally knew he was doing it and, you know, was just trying to take credit as opposed to now. My unfortunate realization is a lot of times I don't think the Davids or me or whoever even heard Mary say it mm-hmm. for the first time, yeah. which is a totally different level of issue. And so the few times this has happened since I've been aware of it, um, I've been able to say, you know, not door in the face again, foot of the door, say, hey, wait a sec. Um, you know, David, I can't help thinking that's really similar to what Mary said 10 or 15 minutes ago. Uh, do you th- And, you know, you got to do it in a way that doesn't put him too much on the spot, because it turns out with all these counterintuitive realizations, the idea that men turn out to be very fragile is 100 percent true. Um, <laughs> but good luck getting men to appreciate that. Cause I think a lot of us think like, you know, cause I could probably beat a lot of women in arm wrestling that translates into being better at everything else. Right. And it turns out it's just I not, mean, it's not true. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think unfortunately I'm probably wrong on the arm wrestling thing. Um, but, but being able to, I don't know, like uh, that's kind of what an ally is, uh, you know, in these days, I remember a couple of years ago watching uh a press conference at Wimbledon and Andy Murray, the tennis player was being interviewed and they said something about, uh, Hey, so you're about to play um, this American guy in the next round. And this is the, uh, you know, the farthest an Americans gotten in, um, you know, Wimbledon in 10 years. And he's like, American man. Right. And the guy's like, what? And he said, well, you, you know, you said whatever, but like Serena has won Wimbledon twice in the last couple of years. And so obviously when you say tennis player, you meant male tennis player. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he was able to kind of stick his foot out there and say, um, you know, use his privilege and platform to be able to say, you know, here's what you do. And that's the only way I think you can kind of, you know, throw a a wrench into the gears that are constantly spinning to be able to say stop. And being able to, you know, pause is an incredibly useful thing. You know, I do woodworking on the side as a very bad at it, but it's a fun hobby. And, you know, in woodworking and, and building, I'm sure in general, the one of the maxims is measure twice, cut once. And I think there's a similar thing that could be extrapolated from our impressions of other people. You know, one of the stories that you've I've heard you share is about two boys and their haircuts. I think one of the things that's powerful about that story, and I don't know if, if you would share it, but is that when bias shows up as neutral or it hasn't been like tainted yet, you know, against each other, 
all, it's so rare and it's so magical when it happens. Like that story comes to mind when you talk about that. Yeah. And, uh, and I'd be happy to share it. You know, a few years ago, I, I'd seen on the uh, morning news, these two best friends, white and black boy in first grade at the time. And they had made the, the morning news because uh, they had gone the uh, previous week to get the same haircut. So their teacher couldn't tell them apart. And it's an incredibly uh, wonderful thing. But it's also, you know, deep in the sense that I got to tell you, like, I hear, I'll just tell you this, and this is almost like a public service announcement. In the, the, the multiple years that I've been talking to the public about this stuff, in a given week, I would have at least a dozen white people tell me they're colorblind before lunch. Mm-hmm. In the same amount of time, in years, not a single person of color, not a single black person has told me they either cannot see white people or are colorblind. And I find that fascinating. And it turns out to, I think it goes into the privilege stuff. I think a lot of people of color don't have the luxury of thinking uh, that they're colorblind, right? And, and incidentally, being black is informed a great deal of black people's identity. They're not trying to hide it. They're not ashamed of it. And so for you to just kind of gloss over by saying, oh, you know, I don't see color. Um, I'm colorblind. Those little boys, they are colorblind, you know, at age whatever, six. But, you know, adults aren't. And, you know, I read a line a few years ago, if you can't see race, you can't see racism. Mm-hmm. And that's true. And I think like, like David said, it, it, it is a moving thing when it actually happens. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen in adults because it certainly does, but it's instantaneous, it's fleeting, and it's often under duress. Think about, you know, you hear at least once every uh, few, few times during a summer where somebody will get ripped out into the ocean with a strong tide and then a human chain forms to pull them in. In that moment, nobody cares who's white, who's black, who's male, who's female, Muslim, Christian, whatever. You do it because you're a human. And if a car flips over on a highway, you pull over and you assist. Nobody cares. But then, of course, instantly we go back to caring. And and why? And I always have that uh, image on there of those two boys because it's a heartwarming image. It's also a little bit heartbreaking in the sense that I think the reason we find it charming as adults is because of almost how ludicrous, you know, it is in the back of our mind. Like, you know, I would never do that as an adult because it would fall flat on its face. Kids have so much to learn about the ways of the world, adults think. And yet we've got a lot more to learn from them than I think we you know, want to appreciate. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for bringing up colorblind. I actually almost brought that up earlier in our conversation because it came on early in my mind. I think that I've always been confused by this like uh, pride that comes with saying colorblind because I feel like then you're removing the celebration of the diversity because like you said, it's like, oh, I'm not acknowledging that there's diversity in our, like I think of our master statuses as like the first ways that we really measure those are like the gateway drug to bias conversations. I feel like it's like, are you male, female, or otherwise, you know, what's your skin color? Or do you, are you a mom? You know, it's just like what we've been saying. It's like, I'm a white male guy that is middle-class, blah, blah, blah. Like there's these master statuses that I think are the start of the conversation. And I think colorblind really brings, brings that up and can be the gateway to like, what are these more subtle ones that are happening since there's clearly, like you said, more biases than human bones. Like I'm still also shook by that. 
that we're just scratching the surface when it comes to this conversation, I'm realizing. Yeah, and I will say, uh, and I could definitely send out, and I don't know if you guys posted anything, but there's this wonderful graphic online called the Cognitive Bias Codex that very clearly and cogently lays out the ones I'm talking about. And the vast majority, I should point out, are do not deal in how we see other people. The vast majority of these biases are between ourselves and the world. You know, how we, how we judge time, how something like primacy and recency, which is the tendency to remember things at the beginning of something and the things at the end of something. But they're all categorized in different ways to, you know, help us uh, run as smoothly as possible because that's what our brains are like. You know, over the past several thousand years, the human brain has been compared to the, the abacus, the telephone switchboard, the water clock, the locomotive. And now the reigning analogy is like a computer, Right. And the brain gets it right a lot of the time, but sometimes it gets it completely wrong. And, you know, I just read, I read uh, about a month ago about this woman in Kentucky who bought a wedding dress online and she was so dissatisfied and unhappy at how horrible it looked when she put it on that she wrote the company to say how unhappy she was. And they immediately wrote her back and it was one line. And they said, you know, dear Mrs. Smith, you're wearing the dress inside out. Can you please put it on the right way? And, and I loved it because she posted it saying, you know, you think you've had a bad week. Look what I did. <laughs> and I was thinking, I was thinking we do that constantly. Uh, we have the equivalent reaction about other people, like putting a piece of clothing on inside out and backwards. What we don't have is some company writing us back saying, whoa, you, you know, you got to completely, not only were you wrong here, but it's like wrong this way. And I think like being able to, you know, going back to the measure twice, uh, cut once thing, putting a pause in your thinking is, is on the one hand, much easier said than done, but man, it bears fruit. It's a fertile way of, of doing things. And I think like more than once I've been able to not catch myself from initially having the reaction, but I have caught myself that I'm having the initial reaction and you don't always have to endorse the initial thing you think. But the only way you can't endorse it is if you realize that it's happening. And so... Well, I think that that pause, that might be the magic thing that I'm walking away with, not only as, you know, maybe trying to catch words or seeing the bias as they come out of my own mouth and thinking, but then also the pause when you see it in real time with the analogy of the the door, right, of putting, okay, I just saw something, pause, how do I put the foot in the door rather than the door in the face? So I, I know that many people are going to be like, like me, every time you and I hang out, uh, my mind is just goes 100 miles a minute. I like all the new ways that I'm just seeing the world and new lenses. And so I know that many people are going to want to know more about the Freedom Center and the work that you do there. How can people connect? Well, so we've got an exhibit and learning lab at the Freedom Center called Open Your Mind. And we'll be able to provide uh, some contact info for that. And that could come in the form of either coming to the actual museum to visit. We could do virtual discussions uh, in line with kind of what we're talking about today that could be tailored and tweaked for various groups of which we've done pretty much all the types of groups at this point. And then also, uh, you know, we've gotten pretty good at being able to rev people up and showing them the basics in an hour or two hour discussion. But then we've also just started to launch a new program we're calling Spark. Uh, and this is uh, geared toward try to get people to do a more long form, thoughtful, intentional um, learning process over the course of either 
you know, it could be anywhere from a half day to a day workshop or training, either in person or virtually, or also over the course of a few months, depending on what is most conducive to what an individual group or groups uh, want to engage in. Because for a lot of people, you know, a lot of this stuff is brand new. And so maybe we hit them, uh, you know, over the head pretty hard with the first stuff and it takes a few days or a few months to marinate. But once it starts to sink in, we want to be able to give people opportunities and options of what to do next. Because again, this stuff is, it's just gonna, you know, you quickly can build some muscle, but what happens if you don't use that muscle? It atrophies. And so we need to be able to keep going constantly and, you know, go from there. And so I'm okay with people contacting me directly, you know, with any questions or suggestions uh, that, you know, people think that might make this be better. Yeah, well, uh, I know, Mary, you probably, I, I think you share the same sentiment, but I think this is what, part one of another conversation someday. So Ryan, thanks so much for your time and just all the work that you're doing. It's, I think it's really important in so many different ways. So, Yeah, in terms of a takeaway that I would like everybody to, to leave with was said by a, a young woman a few years ago, a high school junior who said to me, uh, what I learned today is that while I might be a very accepting person, my brain might not always be. And I've yet to hear anything that tops that. Perfect. Well, thanks so much. And yeah, it was great meeting you, Mary. I look forward to more talks. Thank you so much for being here. It's been such a treat. Be well. Now, if you're like me, then the first time that I heard Ryan speak, my head was spinning. Not only understanding the bias that I have in my mind, and then what do I do with it, but still wanting to go a little bit deeper. So we wanted to invite our friends to tell you a little bit more about their podcast. If you're learning from this conversation about implicit bias, you'll want to head over to learn more about how you can play a part in uprooting systemic racism over at our podcast, Dear White Women. Nope, it's not just for white people and it's not just for women, but we, Sarah and Misasha, are biracial white and Japanese daughters of immigrants who are parents to very mixed race kids. And we really want to help you answer the question, so what do I do about this? Find us every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to your shows. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks again for listening to this conversation. It was such a privilege to be able to share it with you. Have a great week, everyone. Be well. Third Place Podcast is produced by Podcast Publishing House. If you like what you're hearing, follow us and subscribe at all of your favorite platforms, Apple, Spotify. Also check out the episodes on our website, thirdplacepodcast.com, for additional resources and transcriptions of our episodes.